Buddhist sitting alone in your room Come hear the music play Life is a cabaret, old chum Come to the cabaret Ah, the movie musical A beloved film genre that has been part of American cinema since the 1920s for decades, American audiences couldn't get enough of film characters expressing themselves by busting out in the song. And for the longest time, these movies would consistently prove to be surefire money makers as well as garner much critical acclaim. But then around the 60s, something happened and the movie musical fell on to hard times. Was it because of changing movie and music tastes, cultural and social upheavals, or all the above? Regardless of the reason why, the many musical films released after this tumultuous decade would prove to be some of the most bizarre, ill-conceived, and downright terrible movies ever made. So much so that the genre is still recovering to this day. On today's episode of Slums of Film History, we're going to dig into the worst films this genre has to offer in an attempt to find out where it all went wrong. So let's all get together and do this one more time with feeling as we belt out a little ditty I like to call Musical Monstrosities. History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is not normally discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week, one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from amputation, masturbation, menstruation, and castration. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hey, Sleep. Hi, Tom. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm yeah. good. I just woke up from a nap, but I'm having coffee. I'm going to wake up. I'm good. good. Yeah. I'm glad. I, you, you'll want to be awake for this, I think. I think so, too. Thanks for letting me take a nap, though. Oh, you're welcome. I don't like it when you're all cranky up in here anyway. Yep. So before we get started, I just want to kind of give a couple of shout outs to some podcasts that I actually started listening to during the pandemic. Okay. Which I used to make fun of me because even though we have our own podcast, I never, never. really listen to them Never much. listen to podcasts. You'd be like, I feel like all these other podcasts do this thing. And I'm like, you don't listen to shit. Yeah. You I don't know that. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's fair. But there is a few that I did listen to even back then, but I've listened to a few more now. And so I kind of want to share some of those, and I'm sure you've got some you want to share as well. So the first one I want to shout out is called Cadavercast. I think we mentioned them before. They're actually fans of the show, but it's mm. this guy and his young son. I don't know how old his kid is, but he's young. And each episode is this guy introducing his kid to like new horror movies. So it's yeah. very family friendly, but it, it's cute. And anyone who is in the same boat, like, and wants to introduce horror movies to their kids, this is a good show to listen to. Like old horror movies, right? Like Frankenstein and stuff. Well, some of that too, but also like they're not how, watching like Saw, are they? <laughs> no, but like the Blob or like the new Blob, or even I think I don't know if you, they watch the Thing. I think he sort of talks about movies that the kids not old enough to see yet. Right, right. But I think they've seen like Gremlins, which is that's yeah, suitable. Sure. But that's a good one. 
Yeah, let me know when they've moved on to Hostel and <laughs> Human Centipede with the second one. I spit on your grave. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I can't wait for that episode. And then this one called Friendly Fire. And this one my friend Sonia turned me on to. And it's these three guys who watch basically watch war movies or that kind of movie and discuss it from like a military point of view or like a foreign policy point of view. Mm. I mean, it's army shit, which I'm right, interested sure. in because he's beating the army. So that's kind of a cool one too. And the last thing I want to talk about, not necessarily a podcast, but I've followed these guys for years and they're the, the guys from the Found Footage Festival. You've seen their show. I've seen their mm-hmm. show. They used to put on a live show. I mean, they still do, but since the pandemic happened, they put on shows online. And what they do is they show a bunch of crazy clips from VHS tapes. And it's pretty fucking funny, actually. They have a Facebook page. So every Tuesday at 9 p.m., you can find Found Footage Festival on Facebook and watch their shit because it's pretty good. I think they also broadcast it on YouTube. They're not hard to find. You can find them and watch it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, those are mine what do you got oh god all i listen to is true crime you're a middle-aged woman <laughs> it's not good it's not i shouldn't do that yeah my favorite show is case file <laughs> it's an anonymous host nobody knows who this guy is i mean if you dig around you can find it you know obviously the internet's figured out who this guy is but yeah um, it's an anonymous host out of australia and it's totally scripted he just you know he and his team like do all this research and he just delivers the case to you yeah it's super super straightforward he's huh. just like i Hello. He's not even like, hello. He's just like, on the night of June 23rd, 1942, a man died. That's my Australian accent. Sorry, yeah, it's not very well good. Well done. Really well done. But I just love how straightforward and like his voice is very soothing, but he's also like, blood was everywhere. And I'm like, this <laughs> the show's great. So I listened to every episode of Case File. So okay. now I'm listening to Crime Junkie which is two women that kind of like one of them takes the lead and she delivers the episode to the yeah. other girl and the other girl like asks a lot of questions. So that's the one I'm listening to right now. I swear to God, that's it. Two podcasts and both true crime. Yeah. All right. So let's move on. So this is my musical episode. This thing's probably unwieldy beast. I tried to make sense of it. I probably didn't. You've been talking about it for. Oof. Well, you already know why. The audience will also know why once we get to it, but there's a method to my madness or madness to my method, however you want to look at it. And there's a reason why this got into my head and I had to talk about it. Whether it comes together, I don't fucking know. Okay, great. Okay, so let's talk about musicals. Talk about history of musicals. But I'm going to start by defining what a musical is. Okay. So Merriam-Webster's Dictionary says that a musical is a film or theatrical production, typically of a sentimental or humorous nature, that consists of musical numbers and dialogue based on a unifying plot. Okay. You looked that up? I did. That's okay. why I said Merriam-Webster said that. But just... Okay. And that seems straightforward, but... Let's broaden that and say, okay, well, how is a musical different from an opera or an operetta for that matter? So an opera is a drama set to music made up of vocal pieces and orchestral accompaniment and orchestral overtones. Essentially, a fucking opera is just a more serious musical that is all singing. Mm-hmm. And the emphasis is on the singing ability and not necessarily acting ability. Sure. And then an operetta is sort of a kind of like a romantic comic opera, so it's lighter, fair, shorter, shorter, yeah. Operas but, but are sort like of bridges five the two. Long. Yeah, yeah. I didn't tell you this. I'm gonna a segue here. I went to an opera once. Me too. And the one I went to was called the something of the Carmelites. <laughs> okay, I, don't, I forgot. It was something. It was it was about nuns in the French Revolution, and they all died, and they all died like slow meandering deaths that uh, they sang about for like eight hours. I probably like that one. The one that I went to, I was dating this guy who was way too smart to be dating me. 
And he went to the opera, like, I don't know, maybe like twice a month or something like that. He was like a member of the Met. Of course he was. And he took me to the opera and I was like, this is going to be great. And he was like, it's very long and it's a Russian opera, but the subtitles are like on the back of the seat, you know, they're like little closed captioning or whatever. And I was like, sounds great. Like, it sounds really good. And like an hour into it, I was like, this is another four hour. Like, yeah. These fucking things can be long. And I was like, how am I going to dump this guy in the middle of the opera and get walk out the of fuck here? out is yeah. probably your best bet. I was also going to get a tattoo later that day. This is how different this guy <laughs> and I were. And so, and I was trying to figure out, I was like, I'm not going to have enough time to get drunk before I go get my tattoo. <laughs> yeah. This relationship did not last very long. Clearly not. Clearly not. But listen, here's the thing with operas, just to kind of close this out. I recognize how hard they are. Yeah. But I hate them. Well, it's like the ballet. You know, right. you're like, oh my God, that's so hard. But I don't want to sit there and watch I don't it. I sit there and watch you know? it. Yeah, I respect it. And yeah, I don't want too. nothing it's to do great. with it. I'm glad it exists. Right. I just don't need to be a part of it myself. Yeah. Now that we've squared that away and, and we all agree opera sucks, we can move on to the first musical. Well, let, let me back up. Musical theater been around technically forever. The Greeks and Romans had their version of it. The French did too. 15th and 17th centuries had their own type of musicals. But the musical as we know it today kind of came around in the 19th century. The first one that I could find, at least the first American musical I could find, there's some dispute this is the first musical, but the story's kind of interesting. It's called The Black Crook, and that premiered in New York in 1866. Like I said, according to Wikipedia, that is, many theater writers feel like The Black Crook is not necessarily considered the first musical where others do, but... It does have a lot of the attributes that modern musicals have, so it's sort of in dispute. But what's funny about it, and here's the the origin story of it, supposedly The Black Crook was a melodrama, and it was kind of like a retelling of the Faust Faust story. Faust, yeah. Faust. Talked about it in Deals with the Devil. Yeah, exactly. And it contained no songs or dances when it initially was coming out. Uh, It was fucking boring. Yeah. As fate would have it, though, there had been a fire at the Academy of Music in Lower Manhattan, and that left this French ballet troupe basically with nowhere to perform. They, Mm -hmm. They were homeless. So since the Black Crook, like I said, was fucking boring, they basically came and performed their musical and dance numbers in this play. Mm. And so it's kind of incidentally became the first musical. <laughs> kind of interesting. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Anyway, from there on, musical theater evolved into more cabaret vaudeville style in the 20s, where a lot of times plots would kind of take a backseat to more like lively performances. Mm-hmm. You would see this ebb and flow in the coming years, like the 40s and 50s, would kind of get back to more plot-driven stuff. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. The first uh, movie musical I want to talk about that I think most people consider is the first movie musical was the jazz singer from 1927 oh yeah but even that wasn't necessarily a talking picture it was basically a silent movie except when al jolson started singing like he really doesn't have any lines i think he has like one or two words he says that aren't part of a song there's only sound when he sings right it's not really a talkie but it was the first talkie yeah that being the case, more talking movies soon followed, but oddly at first, films weren't worried about making actual movie musicals. I guess they felt that any musical performance in a talking movie had to be on stage. Like, musicals as we know it didn't exist. It was all performance. Like, you could have a movie with a performance, but someone just busting out in song seemed weird to them. <laughs> it is kind of weird. And but it yeah. is kind of weird, but we're decades beyond that. But at the time, movies didn't do that. Now, what they would do, like I said, is if there was a musical number, they would perform it on stage. They'd grab instruments and play on stage. 
those types of musicals were usually called backstagers. And what they did was they usually showed show business. So they were usually either about show business or showed, you know, the mechanics of it. Sure. 42nd Street from 1933 is a great example of a classical backstage musical. All the performances are done for a musical within the film, and they don't just break from reality at all. Right. I actually watched 42nd Street. It's not bad. 42nd Street's great. I saw it in the theater. Did you ever see it with me? I know I used no. to play the soundtrack all the time and you were like, turn that shit off. But <laughs> Listen, there's plenty other soundtracks I wanted you to turn off more than yeah, 42nd yeah. Street. We'll, we'll talk about them as well. So uh, yeah, we've got more stuff to, to berate you about. But 42nd Street is a great musical, but it's also strictly a backstager, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Now, this rule would get broken well, let me back up and say this rule actually was broken four years before in a movie called The Broadway Melody from 1929. Mm-hmm. This film was also considered a backstager with most of its musical performances done on a stage. But there was a scene where the lead sings a song he wrote to a girl he loves like in a room away from all of that. Mm-hmm. There was no orchestra, no radio, no record, no anything accompanying it. Just the soundtrack music came up. I think he had a guitar. He might have played with it, but the soundtrack came up like we know now and mm-hmm. he just played. So it was like hmm. the break of reality in the first time that's done yep. that doesn't seem like such a big deal but it was like such a huge big deal then movie producers were worried their audiences just they wouldn't, wouldn't understand they wouldn't know where that was coming from and they would be like this is fucking stupid right the opposite happened which is everybody got on board and thought that this was great and actually broadway melody won best picture in 1929 oh, wow. and it was also considered the first full talkie picture you know with talking in it mm-hmm. to win an oscar oh wow and i think the first major hollywood musical that totally disregarded this stuff just to give you another example was the wizard of oz from 1939 mm-hmm. no orchestra no band you know just musical numbers but that was probably the biggest at that time biggest hollywood film that totally broke with reality on sure that. but it was also a fantasy picture too right it's easy to get on board with that yeah yeah yeah. And somewhere over the rainbow was like a top 40 hit, you know, like yeah, yeah, it was yeah. one of those things that you could like break that out of the, it wasn't like follow the yellow brick road, which no, if no, you no. heard that on the radio, you'd be like, what the fuck is, what this? The fuck is this? Yeah. But somewhere over the rainbow was like a hit on its own. Yeah. You know, it didn't need to be in the movie to make the movie. No, no, no. And you'll see that trend going forward too. Yeah. So anyway, moving on, I'm going to breeze through the peak of musical popularity because although it's important to mention for this topic, it's not the focus of this episode. So as Broadway Melody ended the 20s on a high note for musicals, the following decades would only make them more popular, which made sense considering how the 30s turned out. Big, extravagant musical spectaculars inherent in backstage films were perfect escapism for that trying time of the 30s. Mm -hmm. 40s and 50s musical films also continued to gain popularity, and during this time they would change and expand and branch off into other types of musicals musicals too so backstage musicals still existed but then you had animated musicals that Walt Mm. Disney was coming out you also had musicals that were now being based off of Broadway stage plays that Mm -hmm. were also popular and then you had like the fantasy musicals that were also coming out and stuff too so these musicals were expanding and were blowing up and these films would almost always be surefire money makers like I said in my intro and a lot of them turned out to be critical successes as well for example between the 30s and the 50s 23 musical movies were nominated for best picture at the Academy Awards and four of them won Mm. And those are just the ones nominated. Literally hundreds of musical films were released by studios during this time. But then the 60s happened, and the movie musical would start to wane in popularity. To show you what I mean, I'll give you a comparison. In 1943, Hollywood Studios released 65 musicals. 
a decade later was down to 38 and then by 1963, only four. Yeah, yeah. And that's a huge difference in just two decades. And it also opens up a big disparity, too, because on paper, the 60s look like the biggest decade for the movie musical. To compare the stats from the 30s to the 50s, in the 60s alone, nine musicals were nominated for Best Picture and four won. Mm-hmm. So the same amount as the three decades before it. It's crazy. Yeah. And at least three of these are like the biggest classics of all time. You've got Sound of Music, My Fair Lady, and West Side Story. And I guess Oliver, which is the fourth one, is yeah. considered sort of a classic, but not as big as the other three. Right. But this is important to note because what this shows is a huge disparity between Hollywood output and what audiences were into. Now let's back up a second because by the late 50s, there became a gap between the music used in movies the studios were making and the music an increased increasing percentage of the nation were actually enjoying, namely rock and roll. Mm-hmm. The 1950s also witnessed the invention of the teenager. You mentioned this in your Beach Party Massacre, yeah, yeah. a demographic that for the first time was the targeted audience of movies. You also mentioned what I'm about to bring up next, which is Elvis Presley, mm-hmm. or more specifically, Elvis Presley movies. Mm-hmm. Some really good ones. Just <laughs> kidding. So we talked about Elvis Presley movies in your Madonna episode, and yep. we also agreed that they're pretty fucking awful. Yep, yep. Elvis couldn't act for shit, but he didn't really need to. He just needed to show up and sing, and that's pretty much what he did. Yep. I mean, these films were really just vehicles for Elvis's music, and they worked like a charm. For instance, in 1956, Elvis signed a seven-year contract with Paramount. His first film, Love Me Tender, added four musical numbers to capitalize on the one million advanced orders of the single. Mm-hmm. And it's a great song. Yeah. The film generated $540,000 in its first week and made $4.5 million by the end of the year. It's a lot. Now, let me back up and say rock music had been shown in a few films before the Elvis pictures, but it was his movies that really mainstreamed rock and roll in film. Back to the 60s. So on the front half of the decade, as kids were getting into rock and roll, another big thing happened, Beatlemania. And then in 1964, one of the most important rock and roll films was released, and that was A Hard Day's Night. Mm-hmm. And it could be argued that movie musicals would never be the same after that. Yep. For two reasons. One, this movie, I think, even more so than Elvis in the last decade, made musicals cool and opened them up to a younger, hip crowd. While Hollywood was still churning out old musical films that were still getting critical and financial success with adults, they were getting less and less popular with the growing number of teenagers who were the film-going audience. Yep. Another thing is that Hard Day's Night and its follow-up help would prove to be films that would seem to fit in better with how Hollywood was shifting in the latter part of the decade. And I'll give you an example. By 1967, The Summer of Love, here's a list of the films that were nominated for Best Picture. In the Heat of the Night, which won? I know all these. I know Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and then Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> right, which is... So they wrote a whole book about this, about yep. 1967 and the Best Picture nominees. And it was basically that there was kind of something for everyone in there. Yeah. And anybody that couldn't kind of get behind the new cinema thing that was happening voted for Dr. Doolittle. Oh but God. of course it didn't win, so... No, and... I Actually, that's my first monstrosity that I'm going to talk about today, mm-hmm. because this film sucks. Yeah, this is hot it's, garbage. It's not very good. The film, for those who don't know, stars Rex Harrison, and he was fresh off of My Fair Lady, which was a success, and he played a guy who could talk to animals. Yeah. The movie is based on a series of kids' books, but the movie was a flop, and critics hated it also. According to Studio Records, the film needed to earn $32 million to break even, but by December 1970, the film had only made $16 million, so... Yeah. 
supposedly this film almost bankrupted 20th Century Fox. Yeah, sure. I mean, they just remade it again, and that sucked too. Like, let some of these things that are bombs 10 times, like, the 11th time isn't going to be the magical one that, like, pulls it back up again. It's shitty, it's stupid, let it go. It's good you bring that up, because what happened with that property is a good symbol for this whole genre. Because, if you remember, Dr. Doolittle, after the Rex Harrison flop, became an Eddie Murphy vehicle, which was pretty successful. Yeah, that actually did make some money. Then this latest one with Robert Downey Jr. was a huge flop. So what happens here is these movies end up giving studios hope to kind of go along with the same thing, only to have it crash and fail miserably. You'll you'll see that pattern going forward. Um, And actually, you'll see it right now because... After Dr. Doolittle, the other musicals that came out in this decade, Hello, Dolly, Paint Your Wagon, Goodbye, Mr. Chips, all of these were big Hollywood musicals, and they all fucking failed. Yeah, sure. So the end of the 60s, traditional musicals were a shitstorm. Another thing that happened in the theater realm in 1967, hippies got into musicals, and the musical Hair came out. And that was a big-ass hit. Hair's great. Yeah, and it was a totally different type of musical. It was about protesting the Vietnam War. It had nudity. It had profanity. I think it had drug use in it. I've never yeah. seen Hair, but... Oh, it's great. I've seen it twice, actually. Don't um, surprise me. They did a reboot of it in New York. I took my parents and my grandma to see it, and I said to them, I elbowed my grandma, and I was like, here's the part where they take off all their clothes, because <laughs> everybody on the stage just gets naked. Yeah, yeah. She loved it. Yeah, yeah. It's awesome. But this was a total sea change in musical theater. And it set the stage for what was coming up for the next decade. Now, let me back up and say another show also sort of did its part to set up the musicals for the next decade. And that musical was called Cabaret. Yeah. Cabaret on the surface has a lot of more traditional types of songs, but its content is darker. Yeah, totally. Well, the great thing about Cabaret is it's more like the backstage musicals. Yeah. All of the songs, in the movie version at least, don't just, they don't break out into song. They're all right. stage numbers or something. In the theater version, there's some stage numbers and there's some, they just break out in song in the middle of it. But Right. God, it's been so long since I've seen Cabaret. But the, so good. What also happened in the 70s were Hippies Found Jesus... Mm-hmm. Right. And Jesus Christ Superstar, Godspell, and Joseph and Technicolor Dreamcoat oh, all got together and came out. But Jesus Christ Superstar, I think more than the other two, was definitely a rock opera. Ugh. And I think it was all the worst sensibilities of that era. But it also influenced what would come after it, which is why I bring it up. And it was also a big hit, actually. Jesus Christ oh, yeah. Superstar, the movie, which came out in 73, it made like $24 million at the box office. It was the highest grossing musical in the U.S. and Canada for that year. Mm. So that shows something. Godspell did a little bit less. And I think Joseph, Joseph, I don't think was ever put in a film. But the reason I bring those up is because the rock opera kind of went in a weird way too. You're going to see this popping back up as we go. Let me do a slide aside again and say Cabaret, the movie, was a big fucking deal, too. That came out in 1972, and that got a shit ton of of awards. It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards and won eight. It lost Best Picture to The Godfather. And so I'm using that also as I think throughout the 70s, filmmakers got the wrong lesson from Cabaret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Next up, though, things get good. Well, bad, but good. And if this doesn't show that the old world musical, at least for now, was dead, then nothing will. So the next movie I'm going to talk about is the Rocky Horror Picture Show from 1975. Everybody knows this movie. I mean, this movie's been around forever. What some people may not know is that this film was largely critically panned on its initial release. It was a flop, but became a midnight sensation almost yep. immediately. It's 
it's been played every Saturday night somewhere yep. for the last 50 years or almost 50 years. I don't think you can overstate the impact of this film. It was so bold and unabashedly campy as a rock opera. It was like everything Jesus Christ Superstar wasn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? I would much rather watch the Rock Hour Picture Show than yeah. Jesus Christ Superstar. And it's an interesting juxtaposition to another rock opera I want to talk about that just came out that year too, which is the movie version of Tommy that was the rock opera written by the mm. group The Who. Yeah. And that film was actually a box office success and it did garner some award nominations. But of course, I think Rock and Horror Picture Show is more subversive. And it's also worth noting that almost 50 years later, there aren't any theater kids going and acting out midnight showings of Tommy. Mm-hmm. So, but one thing to know about both of these films is that Hollywood would take the wrong lesson from both of them, which leads me to my next film with a slight aside. One thing I want to note before I move on to my next monstrosity is that around this time, I think 1976, Robert Altman, auteur that he is, 70s auteur, released Nashville. And let me back up and say, Nashville is more of a backstager. Right, sure. And it's just performances. Have you seen Nashville? You know, there was like three or four or eight years ago that I was like, I'm going to watch every Robert Altman film. And I Uh did see Nashville, yes. Okay. But I couldn't tell you anything about it. I don't know much about it. I don't think I've ever seen the whole thing. This movie, you know, was critically and commercially successful. It was a it was a high point at that time. Again, I think that movie is one of those examples that people also got the wrong idea from with my follow-up movies. So moving on, I want to jump to 1978. And this is a good way to segue into my next film, which stars a band whose popularity was just about to explode. And they, too, were trying to attempt a Hard Day's Night-like musical. And they were trying to do this by actually performing Beatles songs. And that band would be the Bee Gees, and the film would be... Um, um, I got it, I got it, I got it. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts <laughs> Club Band. Club? Is Club part of it? Yes. Sergeant- Did I get it right? Yes. Oh, wow. That was a struggle, though, but yeah. you did say I'm not it. A, I'm not a big Beatles person, so that one right. took me a second, but I got it. Yep. Sorry. Because you made me watch it. I did make you watch it, and oh. we both suffered. So you, you didn't suffer alone. Boy, a Beatles movie with no Beatles in it isn't very good. Yeah. So I feel like somebody's listening to the show right now going, what the fuck are they talking about? So Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, the movie, is a 1978 American musical comedy, and I put that in big-ass quotes because that shit ain't funny. The film stars an ensemble cast that's led by the Bee Gees and also has Peter Frampton. The story is the band is wrangling with the music industry and battle evil forces bent on stealing their instruments and corrupting their hometown of Heartland. And actually, this film is a good example of an opera, a rock opera, and that all the songs are providing the dialogue. There's hardly any speaking except for the narration that's over top of everything, and that's spoken by George Burns. He's there to clarify the plot. This thing is a fucking disaster. This movie fucking sucks. It really sucks. It doesn't make any fucking sense. The Bee Gees hated this movie. As a matter of fact, like two days or three days in the filming, they were doing whatever they could to get out of their contract. They were stuck. Yeah. As it turns out, this is the only film they've ever starred in because they were like, fuck that shit. We're not doing this anymore. Do you have anything to say about this movie besides that it's terrible? You just want to forget it? Ugh, I mean, I don't really remember anything about it. I do remember that big scene in like the town square or whatever at the end. And I was just like, this is terrible. It's so bad. In the town of Hotland, he left his musical instruments. These instruments have the power to make dreams come true. And as long as they remained in Hotland's care, humanity would live happily forever after. Oh, fun fact. The reason they never talked in the movies because they're all British. And so the producers were worried that audiences would be freaked out because they have British voices. Stupidest the, thing in the, the world. The Beatles music was going to come off as British. <laughs> 
like, it's a good point. Icky. Yeah. Very good point. It didn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. This movie's a disaster. It was a flop. So just when you think things were looking bad for the musical movie at this point, especially the rock musical, they only got worse because my next movie is The Wiz, also from 1978. Mm. This movie is a film adaptation from the 1975 Broadway production that's basically the musical version of Wizard of Oz. This show won seven Tony Awards, including Best Musical, and it was an early example of Broadway's mainstream acceptance of an all-black cast. Mm -hmm. It was a a well-regarded show. Sure. And then this movie came out and fucked all that up. Yeah. The movie is noted because it starred former child star and -and up-and-coming adult pop sensation Michael Jackson, as well as current pop sensation Diana Ross. Diana! The Wiz proved to be a commercial failure. It had a $24 million production budget and only earned $13 million at the box office. Also, fun fact, this was the most expensive musical ever made at the time. Oh, really? Yeah, and it just failed completely. Some of the blame was laid at Diana Ross because she was told she was too old for the role of Dorothy. That's a dick move. Yeah. But the movie's not good at all. But also, fun fact, Sidney Lumet directed this movie. Oh, really? Your buddy Joel Schumacher worked on the screenplay. Oh, really? Well, yeah. Joel's so, had some flops. You know? I mean, that's true. It's yeah. true. All right. But then something magical happened after this. A little movie called Grease came out, and it arguably saved the movie musical, at least at this point. Yep. Not only did it save the movie musical in the late 70s, but it also made stars out of its two leads. And I think it opened up the avenue of what I like to call nostalgia musicals that still persist to this day. Mm-hmm. First of all, Grease came out at the right time. American Graffiti was still a big deal. Happy Days Happy was days, on the yeah. air. So this 50s nostalgia was going on. Baby boomers at this point were turning 30 and reminiscing about their teenage years. And so Grease just fit that perfectly. And Grease was kind of edgy. Yeah, sure. You know, for its time. And kind of a risk, too. Especially in the midst of these terrible musicals. This nostalgia film that I know the stage version version was pretty successful though that mm-hmm. in that decade but the movie was a risk like anything else so john travolta had just gotten done with saturday Night fever it was a big hit and welcome back cotter and welcome back cotter olivia newton john you know she was still just widely known mostly in australia as mm-hmm. a singer and i think the only other movie she was in was some crappy sci-fi movie and didn't do anything so it was still kind of a risk right and the movie fucking blew up it also did what you mentioned earlier with wizard of oz and that it spawned some radio hits too separate from the movie which was Hopelessly devoted to you, yeah. and I believe the theme song "Grease" is the word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good song. Yeah. So I think this also falsely gave hope to filmmakers who thought the musical is back. And I say that again because two years later, 1980, I consider like the dark pit of the movie musical. Mm-hmm. Starting with "Can't Stop the Music." <laughs> I've seen this one. You think they would have learned the lesson from the Bee Gees and their attempt at a hard day's night, but well, they nobody sure did not. wanted the village people to have a music. You know what I mean? Right. Like they were fun, they were stupid, they were a novelty band. They were like nobody wanted them to have a musical. No, I don't know why this was thought as a good idea by anybody involved. But this was a huge flop. And here's the thing, too. In the ones that you're going to see me talking about that all came from 1980, or at least most of them that I'm talking about from 1980, they were being produced while disco was still alive. And by the time they came out, disco was dead. Was dead yeah. And the ones I'm talking about are all disco-based films. Right. And so the, I think the, the zenith of this was Can't Stop the Music because there's nothing more disco than the fucking village people. Yeah. And by then, everybody hated disco. Yeah. It's the musical extravaganza that launches the 80s. It's Alan Carr's Can't Stop the Music. You can't stop the music. Once you see it, you'll know why you can't stop the glamour. 
That's the first one I'm going to talk about from 1980. The next one, though, is also a bomb, but I love this movie, and that's Xanadu. I was even going to do this episode is because yeah. I unabashedly love Xanadu. It's bad. Filmed in my neighborhood. Right. I can't wait Venice to go Beach, and check out California. the spots. Yeah. When I come visit, we're going to roller skate around there everywhere. I like Xanadu. I love Xanadu. That being said, it's bad, but it was set up for success. Yeah. Because it had... It should have been good. It should have been great, especially the pedigree behind it because you had... I'm going to start from smallest to highest. So mm. you had Michael Beck, who just came off of The Warriors, which was a big hit the year before. Yeah. And Hot. then, yeah. And then you had Olivia Newton John, fresh off of Greece, also had some musical hits over on her own. Yep. She was pretty big then, super big. And then you had Gene fucking Kelly. His How last do you fuck film, that up? He was like, I'll just go back into the movies with Xanadu. Right. He was like, fuck it. I don't care. I live near here. They're paying me. I'll show up. Yep. I don't care. You know, it was a rock musical. ELO did the music. The soundtrack was a hit, mm-hmm. but the movie just was like huge flop. It yeah. just like it sucks. It, it does suck. It does suck. <laughs> the idea. Well, God, no, it sucks. Now that I think about it, I, I was about to say the I mean, idea of Smash. Can I tell them what it's about? I mean, nobody knows what this movie is about, but like I the, know, I keep thinking everybody does. Know, what but. happens on Earth is that Gene Kelly and Michael Beck want to smash together two ideas, which is like a punk, punk ass, glammy. Disco-y type rock and roll that must have seemed really edgy at the time. Now seems a little silly. It's really silly. And Gene Kelly's kind of like tap dancing, big band, you know, kind of idea and smash the two together, which makes a lot of sense when you look at something like Grease because it was nostalgic. So all this was doing was basically taking... 1980 and right. smashing it together with big bands like, and yeah. it was going to be a club that was going to be the coolest fucking club that Los Angeles had ever seen right and there's this like amazing scene that I use as an example all the time of where mm-hmm. Michael Beck is singing about something Gene Kelly singing about the other thing and they're like no it's going to be like this no it's no, going to be, be like this. this and then the two the, the stage like blends together blends and all together. the two genres the 1940s music and the 1980 glam it's a mashup it's mash like the up. first mashup ever, mash up ever. Yeah. And that's actually my favorite part of the movie. Oh, it's great. Here's the question. So what does Olivia Newton-John have to do with this? And the answer is fucking nothing. She's a muse. Yeah. She's like a ghost. She's like a muse from what? Greek mythology? Because her her father is Zeus. She like drops down into earth and And just keeps Inspires Michael Beck. Yeah, but I mean, who cares? He's like a a painter. He's a sign painter. somewhere. This yeah. Libby Newton John, they had to fit her in somewhere, and that's how they did it. This is why I think Xanadu is the crux of all of this, because number one, its plot is really indicative of this whole era of musicals, in that it's trying to somehow mash together the old musical movies of the past right. with the rock musical of the 70s. Yep. And then they're also trying to have a theme and touch on what is considered the otherworldly religious piece of the early 70s musicals. Oh, I also, see. with the science fiction and a lot of cocaine, oh, which I think is God. what really brought this together and 
the ill-fated idea that a roller disco will be the perfect setting for right. all this to and come together. And it's also the wave of the future. And like it's a, the musical movement of the future. Right. The 80s are going to be all about the fucking roller, roller disco. Roller discos, but with a Gene Kelly big yeah. band infusion. The other scene that's worth watching again, and I should have given it to you just so you could watch it and we could talk about it, is when they finally open up the club and it's this huge number where they've got everything. they got these lines of people fucking doing like, you know, roller derby shit or roller disco shit and then it's got like pop and lockers and it's got like people jumping over other people and it's, it's got crazy. like a chick that's doing one of those circus things where they're spinning yeah. and a thing in their mouth and, and high wire acts like it's this most it's ridiculous overproduced yeah. bullshit ever and it's fucking awesome I mean it's ridiculous that's what this movie is it's just so over the top it reminded me of like if you've ever seen that scene in Mac and Me where they have like <laughs> the most like lit party at the McDonald's oh yeah they're like, all dancing ever. doing flips and shit if at McDonald's like put that in studio 54 that's like what that scene is at the end of xanadu that's the best way to describe yeah. it that being said just to reiterate i love xanadu yeah. however it was a fucking it huge sucks, flop but and it does it's suck. fun it's pretty bad but not as bad as my next movie also from the same xanadu's fucking high art compared to the apple Ugh. so you and i watched this together too oh the costumes oh it's so bad oh it's all satine yeah satine. Talking- <laughs> I, got, I couldn't get past i kept being like why are they all wearing satine yeah it is the most satine movie <laughs> ever made you knew what it was i was like what is this material and you're like oh that's satine satine i might be making this up i don't know i think i was drinking while i was watching oh no this we were both definitely S- drinking while we were watching satine is like fake is like cheap satin that you can like it's like stretchy satin that you can like move around in and it's basically what like (laughs) children's costumes and like the ice capades are like (laughs) made of it looks cheap right it's just it's cheap it's cheap satin and this whole thing was just like draped in sateen yeah actually that's a good description of this movie cheap satin yeah it's like (laughs) it's like what pleather is to leather it is this is the most pleather movie ever so I'm gonna try to give a plot because this thing is just bizarre it's about Alfie and BB and they're these Canadians who come to America to be in a 1994 musical festival 1994 was the far future then it's like American Idol yeah and they have talent but they're beaten by BIM by the way Boogaloo International Music is the evil corporation in Apple and its leader Mr. Boogaloo uh, wants to sign one of the couple I think it's the girl and she signs up and it's a parable of it's everything from Faust to like creation to like the apple is like it's also Eve got some allegory like, so it's a, a bunch star of religious is born in it too it because does. they like they take her talent but they kind of like they make her conform her right. musical style and they slut her all up and stuff like that yeah they do slut her all up which yeah. that's the better part of the movie but the music's dreadful oh it's so bad this music is the worst there's not a in hook that. in that entire thing like you know even a bad musical you should walk out of there it's what they always say with a hook in your head you know mm. with like some song <laughs> some song that you're like 42nd street there's nothing you there walk out of this, this with anger Angst. Yeah, it is horrible. Yeah. It's considered one of the worst movies and of Jesus-y all time. And it's jesus too. It well, ends up, it, they, all, they all like join a cult at the end. They, and they do like, join a cult, and I think God comes down and fixes things. Or it's fucked up. It's this terrible. It's, it's and it's shitty. not good fucked up, so no. we're not recommending this, but it's fucked up. So, again, another movie that took the record business, the rock musical the future. aspect. The future. The, the dark, dystopian future, and religious allegory, and thought that this was a good smashed idea for a musical. And smashed yeah. it all together. In 1990. The world is controlled by one power. The apple is success. Very 
The apple brings you everything. What about happiness? The apple is the temptation. The apple is complete garbage. <laughs> Fuck this movie. It's so bad. Let me rewind two things and say this. I didn't say this after Can't Stop the Music and Xanadu, but those two movies were actually what spawned the Golden Raspberry Awards. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. It was those two movies. So my next musical movie, and I'm closing out 1980 with this, is Popeye, the musical. Yes, I have seen that. I've seen it recently. Starring Robin Williams as Popeye and Shelley Duvall as Olive Oil. Yeah. And it's a live-action musical. It was a $20 million budgeted musical. And bringing this back around to Nashville, Robert Altman directed this. Right. And it had basically nothing to do with the Popeye comic strip. No, 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 not yeah. at all. Somebody coked out said, you know what? Popeye would make a great live-action film character in a musical. And let's not do anything that people love about it. <laughs> let's right. do something completely different. I mean, Robert Altman was not the person it's to do odd. this. The sets are really cool. The sets are very expensive. That's where yeah. the money went. You can the tell. Sets, the sets are great. They built like a whole fishing village. It looks great. Yeah. The movie's it's just hot it's very fucking confusing. garbage. Yeah. So, fun fact, this movie did make $60 million on a $20 million budget, but apparently it just wasn't enough to really make it considered it a hit. Right, sure. Apparently this was a co-production between Paramount and Walt Disney Pictures. I bring up Walt Disney because aside from all these other musicals that were complete garbage, Walt Disney's musicals were in the shitter at the beginning of the 80s and the end of the 70s. Yeah, yeah. So let's take a breath here. The 70s started pretty strong for rock operas and what I guess you could call the modern musical, but by the end of the decade and the first year of the new one, there were nothing but disasters. Basically, high-concept versions of Hard Day's Night or a pseudo-religious and or dystopian allegory that details the corruption in the music industry. Even a Broadway reimagining of The Wizard of Oz couldn't catch a break. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness Hollywood decided to put the movie musical aside for a while. Just kidding. Let's keep going. If the 70s were a low point of the movie musical, and I think it definitely was, then the 80s kept on with that trend, though they did try to see if they could pull it out of its rut. And I'll give you some examples. Because they try to hedge their bets. If you look in 1981, you've got Shock Treatment. Mm-hmm. which is a sequel, sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And the sequel follows adventures of Brad and Janet, damn it, as they end up on some reality show or some shit. I've never seen it. You said you saw it, but I never seen it. Years ago. I think Tim Curry was asked to reprise the role, but he declined, which is probably why it doesn't have nearly the cult status as the original. But it made sense. It's like Rocky Horror is still going strong. Maybe we can boost it with a sequel. Didn't happen. So the next best thing was, why don't we make a sequel to Grease? Mm-hmm. <laughs> And Grease 2 came out in 1982. We need to discuss this for just a second. Who the fuck thought this movie was a good idea? I've never seen it. Really? No, my sister used to watch it and... I feel like she liked it better than the first one. I mean, wow. this was in this is when she was like twelve. You know what I mean? Yeah, I never saw it. You need to have a talk with her. Let me just give you the rough plot, which isn't much. They switch up the genders of Danny and Sandy. So the girl is the rebel this time, and the guy is a shy nerd from Australia trying to be cool, like which that. is not a bad idea. But the songs are complete. Yeah, Hot I've never garbage. heard any songs from Grease 2. Well, good. You're about to hear one. Here's one that I queued up for you for you to listen to. When a warm-blooded mammal in a tight little sweater starts pulling that stuff, she's saying that she wants to do it. Prove it by me. Because they change the tune when you got them in the backseat. With his heart beating fast. They make it sound like a track man gross. Yeah, and all they can do is say, Baby, give it to me now. 
So that song that Slate just heard was the song Reproduction from Grease 2. Uh, Can't believe that never made it on the radio. <laughs> I'm closing it. I don't even want to look at it. <laughs> That's the type of music that was in this movie. That's it's, what people hate about musicals. Right. Is that type of thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Grease 2 was a huge flop. Fun fact, it was Michelle Pfeiffer's first film. She played the lead female yep. character. I'm sure she took this off her resume. So a sequel to Grease didn't work either. Same year Annie came out, the musical version of Annie. Hmm. Also a flop. Yeah, Annie was a bomb. Yeah, it was a big bomb. Yeah, but I mean, it was I think it recouped. You know, probably on video and stuff like that. Probably but like, everybody was expecting that to be like the movie of the year, and it just it just yeah, didn't. It fell off pretty bad. Honestly, that's all I have to say about the eighties. Except one little thing. I'm just going to bring this up. Little Shop of Horrors from 1986, mm-hmm. based on the Off Broadway play, the same name, which is itself based off the Roger Corman '60s movie. Yeah, it had Rick Moranis in the lead role. It's a fun movie. It didn't do great, it but didn't. it did much better on video. Yeah. No, so. it didn't do great. It, I love that movie so I mean, too, much. It's a great movie. Every song is great. Yeah. Wasn't exactly a mainstream hit, you know? No, no, it wasn't. But it did build a life on video later. So it wasn't the movie that would bring the 80s out of this musical rut. But what did happen in 1989, and it was a Disney musical called The Little Mermaid. Yeah. And I'm not talking about their movies about this. I'm just pointing that out. That from Yeah, that was what pulled Disney out, out. of Disney's kind of like rut. Yeah, out of its rut. And Disney musicals really dominated the 90s. Mm -hmm. I can't really think of very many musical movies in the 90s, but I do have three examples of two that are movies and one that is an actual musical that I do want to talk about. The first one is Broadway musical Rent from 1996. Mm -hmm. And for better or for worse, Rent revamped the rock musical and made it 90s hip where its hipness would be trapped forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was cool in the 90s and it's the only place Rent was cool in right. the 90s. The second music I want to talk about is Evita, the movie. We talked about that during your Madonna movies, also from 1996, but it was a much hyped Madonna vehicle, but it was, I think, one of the most anticipated musicals for both mm-hmm. success and for anticipated failure, so it really stood out yep. in the 90s. And then the last one is my favorite musical movie from the 90s, which is South Park, the movie from 1999. Oh, I love that one, yeah. My personal favorite, I think it's a, a, a brilliant movie, and I can watch it a million times. I love it, And you and I did it. And it's interesting, too, because it's amazing how it came so close to actually winning an Oscar an for Oscar, Best Song. Yeah. But, you know, it also served, in my opinion, as a test run for Trey Parker and Matt Stone's future Broadway hit, Book of Mormon. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like sure. they tested the waters with South Park, the movie, and look where they are now. Yeah. But I love that movie, and I think it's just such a great movie. They musical. get it. You know, they get the whole thing. They yeah. know how to make fun of it. They're in on their own joke. They you are. You know? They, they get it. They know how to make fun of it, but also make it like good. And also make, have it make money. <laughs> and too. have it make money, yeah, yeah. too. Yeah. So that's the end of the 90s. The 2000s when musicals became a thing again. Yeah, sure. Chicago, um, the first Rouge. One, oh, well, that's sorry. <laughs> well, yeah, you're stealing my thunder. But you're right. I think the first one, the first really big one was Moulin Rouge. Moulin Rouge like just hit. Yeah. And I feel like Moulin Rouge took all the lessons from musicals before and finally did it right. Yeah. They made it fresh for the time. The movie kind of used pop hits, but also repurposed them as musical numbers, yeah. which was super fresh at the time. I mean, I'm sure other musicals did that maybe here and there, but I don't think to this extent it really like made it its own thing. And it blew up. Yeah. I mean, and of course it was a financial hit, but it also was nominated for eight Academy Awards and it won two. Yeah. But then the following year, fucking Chicago came out. Yep. And that was even bigger. That was a huge international hit. That was nominated for a whopping 12 Academy Awards and, and it won, it won five. 
five, including mm-hmm. Best Picture. Yep. So the 2000s really started off strong in regards to musicals. But what's interesting about that, too, as we go through, and I just want to kind of summarize it, is that something like Moulin Rouge was a bold move, but then they sort of backtracked into safer territory. You know, Chicago, it was a big musical itself on Broadway and even bigger in the movie. So what you end up seeing were other Broadway shows and other movies that used nostalgia music to sell it. And some of these were based on Broadway. Like, I'm, I'm thinking of Rock of Ages, but it was all 80s That's what music. I was thinking of, too. Yeah. You know, everybody's taken something from Broadway. Right. You know, Mamma Mia, which was a huge hit. hit. Sequel's a big hit. Yeah. All taken and, from Broadway, and it's recycled music. It's yeah. It's album awesome. music from the 70s, you yeah. know. One time when somebody did try to take a stab at something in the early 2000s, and you get from Justin to Kelly from 2003. Oh, I love this movie. I've seen it two whole times. Oh, my God. Never told you this? You? No. I saw it once, and mm-hmm. I thought I was going to fucking die. I started listening to the How Did This Get Made episode on it, and it was so funny in like the first like 10 minutes, and I was like, i got to watch this movie. So I went home, and I rented it on Amazon. Yeah. And, you know, they only give you 24 hours or something to watch it. And I watched it almost to the end. And I forgot, I either fell asleep or something. But then the next night, I had something else. I had some work event that I had to go to. Right. And I was like, I want to see it. And so I had to buy it a second time. Yeah. Because it had, the clock had run out. So I paid to watch from Justin and Kelly two whole times. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the only two times that movie has ever yeah, been rented you, that anybody paid for it to yeah. watch it. Why? Tell me. What's your what it tell me? So Talk when American Idol came out, contractually, the whoever won and the runner up were contractually obligated to star in a film right. of which there was no script. And they were basically just going to whoever the top two people were, they were gonna write a script right. and then they were gonna write some music and then they were gonna be in it. It was gonna be this big huge thing, yeah, and all the thing. teens were all gonna go see it. So yeah. when Justin Guliani or whatever and <laughs> Kelly Clarkson won, yeah. They didn't have a choice. It wasn't like they didn't have script approval. They, they had, had already nothing. signed contracts right, for exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So they just slapped this movie in front of them and they were like, here you go. Well, here's the thing. Kelly Clarkson can sing. She's very good. Justin, whatever his name is, can sing. He's very good. They mm-hmm. cannot act. It would be one thing if this were like a documentary of the big screen documentary of American Idol That's and their rise thing. to fame, you know, or whatever. But they played characters. Yeah. This is a Grease-esque yeah. musical movie, full on. And that's the other thing they can't do is make chemistry with each other because they had none whatsoever. Kelly Clarkson was so uncomfortable Mm -hmm. in this love interest role, I think. like I think Justin maybe did a little bit of a better job of it, but like she was very uncomfortable with this new status that she had as like an actress and like a celebrity or whatever. It didn't work for her. I mean, it's a very G-rated you know, type of thing. They all go to spring break. They have a misconnection and the whole rest of the movie is misconnection. Basically, probably yeah. so they never have to kiss and we would all throw up. Right, exactly. It sucks. It sucks. <laughs> it's so I bad. Mean, it's just all like, the musical numbers and it suck. Like, there's nothing's no, memorable. No. Ugh, it sucks. And it bombed. I mean, it didn't no, make a million bombed. dollars at the box office. No, nobody, nobody was saw waiting it. for everybody this movie hated to come it. out. Yeah. It was nominated for uh, 10 Razzies. Rightfully so. Rightfully so. The, yeah, this movie was completely garbage. But interesting point like the Bee Gees in their screen debut, she was trying to do whatever she could to get out out of her contract and couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. She was like, I need to get out of this thing, but it was too late. This summer, come with us to Miami. It's not my scene. Music will bring two strangers together. Kelly Clarkson. I should take a chance. Justin Garini. This one's special in the musical event of the summer. From Justin to Kelly. And then the last movie I want to talk about, which is the main reason that I'm doing this whole stupid fucking thing, is Cats. 
from 2019. <laughs> Cats is it's like a bold misfire from a bygone era. Like well, this is he a made 60s... Lay Miz too. Like yeah. you know, which I mean, I don't know if Lay Miz made any money. I guess it did because they gave him money to make Cats. But right. I was furious at that movie when it was <laughs> over. I was furious. I saw it with listener Anthony. And he was like, that was fun because it was so bad. And I was like, I hate movies. (laughs) Like, I was mad. Wow. It sucked. And I mean, obviously, like, I mean, we can talk about it forever. But, you know, I mean, everybody else has too. It's one of those things where it was just like, all it was was just like somebody coming out and being like, let me introduce myself. And they just like sang a song. And they were like, my name's Bagibal Boop. And (laughs) I like purring and eating and popping up hairballs. Being weirdly sexual, but as a cat. (laughs) and look at my butthole and it was just like there's two hours of this yeah and then somebody sings memories and then they get to be sacrificed to the cat gods or whatever it's like a weird cult thing yeah this movie i mean jennifer hudson is probably the only person that could actually hit the notes to memory so probably when she signed on to it they were like at least we've got jennifer hudson here she can sing that song it's the only one anybody remembers from cats anyway right nobody can name all the lyrics to mr mistopheles or whatever like the rest are garbage sucked just sucked but that's the thing about this movie why i had to see in the theater was because you don't see grand fuck-ups this big anymore like this was something that should have came out in 1980 this is like the bold like i'm an auteur and i have a vision and it was so wrong and so bad wrong-headed it's such a like a fantastic disaster that doesn't happen in hollywood movies even like i said besides again justin and kelly and some of those that wasn't big though you that know what i mean big, that movie they didn't but, spend any money money making that movie the point i'm making most musicals that come out now even if they're bad aren't this bad right. they're not this, this a grand, grand scale failure. disaster and you just don't see those anymore that's why this circles back around to like those monstrosity musicals that the 70s shat out as like this is one of them and it, you don't get to witness that in person yeah. anymore <laughs> yeah there's very few grand scale like disaster like heaven's gate disasters right. and like this is one of yeah. them this is an auteur level disaster. Yeah. And that's where I'm going to end this episode because Cats didn't stop musicals. It didn't probably make people think twice to keep pushing no. musicals out the door. We'll see other ones. Of course you will. And I, and I find musicals to be a fascinating genre of film that somehow manages to just keep going, though I still feel like Hollywood never fully recovered when things went to shit. But that being said, in the Heights, Lynn manuel Miranda's musical that he did before Hamilton, that film has been out for a few weeks now, although... Very good review. Good reviews. It's underperforming. It's underperforming, but you can't really say it's because of the genre or anything. I think it's more so things are still opening up. And it was also released on HBO Max, but I feel that's where a lot of people saw it. Anyone that I know that's seen it has seen it there. So we'll see. We'll see what 2021 has to offer because, you know, I looked up a list of stuff that's coming out this year. There's Tick, Tick, Boom, which is another one of Lin-Manuel Miranda's musicals. There's one on Princess Diana. There's one called Everyone's Talking About Jamie and then Dear Evan Hansen, which I feel like these are all Dear Evan Hansen won like all the Tonys maybe like five or six years ago. So you're having these kind of safe bet. These have been tried and true elsewhere that they're bringing out in theaters. Also, the remake of West Side Story is coming out this Christmas that's directed by Spielberg. Hard Um, no. Yeah, same here, but I'm curious to see what happens with that because that Mm -hmm. could go either way as well. Could go either way. 
And so it's interesting. And we'll just see how it goes. But the point I'm trying to make with these movies coming out and everything else is that you're not seeing another Xanadu. You're not really seeing a big risk taker. That movie that's a written musical just for the screen. You know, they're proven properties. Nobody wants to throw out an apple, which is probably for the better. Then again, I don't know. I'm a fan of, like, the bold failures instead of just the blah, same old, same old. But that's where I'm ending this. I don't even know if it has a real conclusion, but thoughts? Yeah. I love this topic just because I like bad movies in general. Yeah. This is a different genre of it. It's musicals, you know? Yeah. Some bad movies are fun and some are just angering. And that's <laughs> my only issue with Cats is that I was very angered by that. Well, like Xanadu, for example, I was like, I love how bad that movie is. Same. It's a terrible movie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's no point to this episode. I had to, I talked to you about it too. I was like, you know, sometimes you just say at the end of it, you know, there's no point to this. There was and no like, point to this. Totally no, there's nothing really tying it together. Sorry. But yeah. You know, it's an interesting point on Xanadu is a watchable failure, whereas Cats is not. I'll never watch it again, no. even though I'm glad I witnessed that train wreck. I'll watch Xanadu a million times more than I will Cats, and I guess maybe that's the point, too. I beg to differ. I did not need to see Cats. Hearing <laughs> what people thought about Cats was better than seeing Cats. It was Fair. a waste of time. It was a waste of money, and it made me mad. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well... And on that note, we're going to end this episode. So that's the end of our six-episode run. So we hope you guys enjoyed these episodes, and we'll see you soon, hopefully. Take care. Thanks for coming back. Yep. Thanks. Bye. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com, where you can find the links to some of the movies we talked about today. And also be sure to check us out on Facebook and Twitter, where we share a lot of additional content. And if you like the show or have any comments or suggestions, please drop us an email at slumsoffilmhistory at gmail.com or write us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. And they were trying to do this by actually performing Beatles songs. And that band would be the Bee Gees, and the film would be... Um, the, um, hold on, I got it, I got it, I got it. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Um, I got it, I got it, I got it. Um, major, major... <laughs> hold on, I got it. <laughs> Ground control to Major Tom. That's nope, it. Hold on, hold on, hold you on. You did it. You're, you're quite the role model. Yeah, saying. I know. <laughs> They'll never let me be on Cadavercast. <laughs> no. I'd be no like, more. you guys want to get stoned and watch Saw? <laughs> <laughs> They'll be like, you're the worst you're special the worst. guest ever. We hate your show. Yeah. <laughs>